And it's really striking that that's essentially they're just saying this is now built into what it is to have a job. Part of having a job now is the chance that maybe you're going to disable or kill someone who lives with you. Like in a way, the, the political effect of no more pandemic and forevermore pandemic become identical. It's like they've said the scale of social murder is just now so large that it just has to be allowed to happen. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it from your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So today I'm here with my co-host, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And the two of us are joined by returning guest and friend of the panel, Nate Holdren. Nate is a legal historian of capitalism and is a professor at Drake University. He is the author of the book Injury Impoverished, Workplace Accidents, Capitalism, and Law in the Progressive Era, which we've discussed previously on the show. It's a really great book and a great episode about the book. It was actually, I think, the first time we had you on, Nate, back in December of 2021. And you may remember Nate from one of our most popular episodes, which is the conversation that we had with Nate about social murder and COVID. So today we're going to unpack a recent California Supreme Court decision regarding a workers' comp case where the court basically held that employers owe no duty of care to non-employees, including their family members, to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and can't be held liable under state law when their workers get COVID on the job and then spread it to relatives without basically undermining the American economy. And you might think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not, as you'll hear for yourself momentarily. So that is all to say, Nate, welcome back to the death panel. It is so nice to have you back on the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'm glad you could come to help us talk about this court decision and the broader context. So today we're going to talk about what this case and the results of this case Tell us, in terms of the way that the economy is literally privileged over life in the very structure of capitalism and how the courts play a really key role in setting the parameters for social murder and then how this also fits into the ongoing attempt to sociologically produce a premature end to the pandemic. So just to lay out a little bit about the case that is at the center of our conversation today, on July 6th, 2023, the state of California's Supreme Court issued a ruling in the case of Kusiemba versus Victory Woodworks, in which they concluded that under California law, an employer does not actually owe it to their workers to prevent the spread of COVID-19 to employees' household members. And the decision also prevents an employee's household member from suing an employer in civil court and limits those claims to the workers' comp system. So it's really complicated, but basically what this does is it restricts claims in California and really limits the number of claims that can be brought against an employer for transmission in the workplace. And so while you may have only heard about this case recently, when the decision came out, it, it was really sort of discussed a lot in COVID Twitter, for example. But this case has been the focus and on the minds of employers and sort of chamber of commerce types for oh, a yeah. long time now. 
And this has been for a long time sort of referred to in corporate and legal circles as a take-home COVID workers' comp case. So these goals have sort of socially reproduced the narrative that the real issue with these lawsuits and the catastrophic potential that they have to sort of start an endless chain of liability litigation is really what's at issue here and sort of what the preoccupation is both of the business community and of the court itself. And as you'll see, you know, this rhetoric that we're going to talk about, the court just completely laps it up and it's all over their decision. So some of the quotes we're going to get in today are truly heinous. But before we get into any of that, I think we should just start with some context and talk about the sort of circumstances that triggered the lawsuit. And then from there, we can get into big picture stuff. So basically what happens in this situation, there's a man named Robert Kusiemba, and he's married to a woman named Corby Kusiemba. And Robert worked for a company called Victory Woodworks. It was in California, and there was a public health order in effect, a local municipal or county public health order ab about limiting people moving around to prevent COVID transmission. Victory violated that order and brought some employees to the worksite that Robert worked at. And the worksite that they came from had had COVID exposure. And so it was the opinion among Kusiemba and his coworkers at that site were, hey, our employers bringing in people who might have COVID. We don't like that. And then he had to work alongside them and he got COVID um, and this in is violation. Early 2020, by the way. That's right. That's right. And so what he thought was going to happen happened. He got COVID and then his wife got COVID from him and she had a really serious case. She was hospitalized for weeks. She was on a respirator, kept alive for weeks by the respirator. And, um, what happened is a terrible injury to her resulting from his exposure at work. And so that's the kind of basic, just the harms that happened. The employer knew or should have known what it was doing. It violated a clear public health order, did it anyway. She got really hurt. And as we, you know, certainly, you know, and, and our your listeners will know, there's the immediate injury and suffering. There's also, that's really expensive. Um, and so they file a suit to say that she was harmed by his employer's actions. Um, now, one of the things that's there's a lot of legal minutiae here, a lot of rabbit holes. I think one of the things I think we want listeners to take away is that um, not to be intimidated by the minutia and try to. I think a lot of the legal rhetoric encourages us to to concentrate on the details and miss the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and and I think that. So there's some particulars in here, but like there's a particular law about in California about how much um, responsibility employers are expected to take. And it's it's more progressive than is the norm for the U.S. Um, like I said, there's also this public health standard in place, public health order in place. And, and I think a big thing I would want people to take away is that none of that mattered at the end <laughs> of the day. Right. And so that there are these kind of nominal protections that are it turns out when the harms get intense enough. Uh, don't really matter. And, and so, so what I'm trying to say there is that this is the Kusiembas are, are in a relatively favorable policy and legal context, and they still get hurt tremendously and abandoned. Um, and I think that that tells us something part of the big picture here tells us something about what the state is looking to do, which is abandon people because it seems too expensive to not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
this is one of the things that's really interesting to me about the case because there are kind of two questions at issue here where they set it up. And actually, I guess before I get into the two of those, I would say, you know, as B kind of alluded to, um, this was a highly expected case among, you know, industry and among white shoe law firms basically all over the country, you know, preparing for what sort of precedent this would set. There are a lot of, you know, there are dozens and dozens of these so-called take-home COVID court cases, which I think is like a perverse and interesting way that they get discussed in the first place, but, you know, that have been talked about and cited, but often this one, specifically Kusiemba v. Victory Award Works, is the one that would be looked at as like, this is going to be a big watershed moment when this comes down. And so the fact that the ultimate decision was, you know, they looked at these two things, as I was alluding to, uh, one was... Can we say, essentially, that there is a basis under which for this person's partner or for, you know, these two people, the Kusiembas, to sue Victory Woodworks? Is there a basis under which we can say, like, there is a legal framework that could make Victory liable for this COVID infection? Right. One, does that framework exist? Can we say, in fact, that this person taking COVID back with them home from the job site, infecting their wife in the process. And then, you know, that developing into a situation where she's, you know, having to be on a respirator eventually. I mean, notably, this is one case among many. And so in this case, even the person got very sick, but did not die, right? There are several other cases that actually are even cited in this opinion here, where actually like the person's spouse died even from Mm -hmm. COVID and the ultimate ruling and, you know, one case in Wisconsin, one case in Maryland was, you know, where you you guys are not like the company is not liable. We're not doing anything about this. Um, The second question, though, is, okay, if we can say there was a sort of causal chain here, right, if we can say that were it not for the negligence of the company, you know, would this person have gotten COVID? You know, if we can say no, and we can say that the company is liable for it, then, you know, is there anything we can do about it? And the ultimate decision they come to is, well, no, we can't do anything about it, which, you know, I know be telegraphed already, but I think the ultimate decision that they come to is, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a harm. Like that thing that happened to you. Yeah, that's fucked up. But I have to tell you, you know, if we were going to do anything about that, ooh boy, don't even get me started. Like you like with the consequences on that, we couldn't possibly think of doing something so disrupted to businesses, to employers as to make them liable for any of this, because uh, your problem, you know, you person coming to the courts for redress or whatever, your problem situates you you're like butting up right against like the jagged edge of the political economy essentially where if i were to do something about your thing there's all these other people that we'd have to do stuff about and you know i can't fuck with that like as a as a judge or something like i yeah maybe i kind of have a role in shaping and policing the edges of that you know boundary of those boundaries of the political economy but at the end of the day uh shit happens i guess and you know it'd be really fucked up is if we tried to do something about that shit Nothing personal. Well, and I I think one thing that's important to say that, you know, we are all taking for granted here and that I think a lot of people don't necessarily 
know, which is that especially listeners who are not in the United States. So like the U.S. has multiple different levels and types of court systems, right? And there are different ways of accessing your rights through the courts. And some of those ways fall under the umbrella of like civil litigation. And under civil litigation, you've got a much broader uh, series of kind of like harms that can be redressed. You can get more money in, you know, remuneration from whoever you're sort of seeking to claim is is uh, caused your injury. So it's a it's sort of like uh, a more favorable context to pursue a case like this. And so what this decision did is it also said that you know that pathway is foreclosed on that sort of pathway of of like a broader option of trying to enforce justice or whatever, or make your partner's employer pay for the COVID infection that you got that, but for the conditions of like your partner's work, like you wouldn't have gotten that COVID infection at all. And, you know, to take that out of the realm of civil uh, liability litigation and force it into the context of workers' comp is also like a very important and kind of difficult to understand um, wrinkle here. Because basically what's going on is this case is about the state Supreme Court in California kind of weighing the options as to not whether necessarily things were done wrong in the case of the employer and the work context and the COVID infection itself. And in the decision, you know, the court is very clear that, as already said, they like reflected uh, the fact that there had been harm done in the circumstance in that infection. But what they're saying is, you know, but we we're going to still at this time basically say that these claims are not appropriate for this kind of broader frame of being able to like seek a redress. Right. And we're going to restrict it to workers comp. And so you have this process already where people who are trying to sue for these so-called take home COVID infections, they already have like a super high bar of proof where they have to prove to the court that that infection it's reasonable to assume that that infection came directly from the place of work. And that is like a very difficult thing to prove and has gotten harder and harder and harder as testing has gone away. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the court engages in some really disgusting rhetoric like, oh, well, you know, COVID is just everywhere now. So it's like too hard to prove that you got it at work. Like, but again, also the case is in 2020. So it is actually that that's one of the aspects that's kind of repugnant to me. It's like about the moment, even in the moment where the like in early 2020, it's safe to say, I think that the stay at home orders in California or like the public health guidelines in California are probably among the highest that they got. Right. right. Because we know how things progressively got rolled back. And so to say, even in 2020, let's apply the, you know, the, the new worldview that we've all come to understand about like from 2021 to 2023, let's, yeah, let's apply that idea retroactively. Like, well, it seems like there was nothing we could do about this because it is everywhere. And, you know, we've got the tools, but it was 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got the tools. But this is the thing that just makes me so angry about the idea that like the courts are the perfect place to try and assert your rights, right? Like, because really what's going on here is that the court's not debating whether or not the the employer in this specific instance needs to be punished and 
pay for this COVID infection, right? Like the court is looking at this circumstance and saying, are we going to categorically allow this type of um, you know, liability on employers writ large, or are we going to sort of shift and minimize what that kind of claim of harm can actually achieve each individual person who's suing? And so by pushing it into workers' comp, it also pushes these claims out of this sort of like, I don't know, more uh, broad, flexible and accessible claims context of the civil court into workers' comp, which is a lot it's the same sort of difficult burden of proof of proving this kind of impossible causal chain of of where the infection came from and pinpointing that. I mean, it's no wonder our testing infrastructure has been dismantled when you start to piece apart, you know, what the real anxieties are, especially in the context of this case. Like the court doesn't really care about the infection that happened. They're not really here to think about it or say anything about that context or provide anyone with any justice. But they're here to make sure that the system learns from that and protects businesses and, quote, you know, the economy moving forward. So I, I totally agree. So I, I think there's some I don't want to get too much into the minutia, but I think trying to try to read the minutia, so to speak, try to help listeners understand how to read the minutia. And I have another point I want to make. So um very broadly, what workers' comp law does is it says, if you get hurt, you will get some money, generally speaking, if you get hurt in, in your job, not very much money, and there's lots of problems with, with that arrangement. Um, that is sometimes taken to be a pro-worker law. I think that's a mistake. But but what this case brings out is that what the law, what workers' compensation laws also do is they say, whatever the compensation you got, you're fully compensated. Yeah. So it's it's not like a what do I deserve? It's like you're going to get what you're going to get and what you get we'll just retcon that to be what you deserve. And so that's a really broad pattern that's and there's a lot of brutality built into that. Mm-hmm. In 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 this case the first phase of the decision is this long discussion about what harms fall into that if you're compensated the harms are compensated category and if there's harms that don't. And what they end up deciding is that, and this is where it's they decide that that um Corby Kusiemba does have a right to file her suit because she's independently harmed. She doesn't suffer a workplace accident. She suffers an independent accident as a result of the company's acts company's behavior. Whereas if her injury from COVID was logically dependent on him having been injured, right? So if, imagine a different scenario where he's the one who gets put in the hospital on a respirator and then they lose their house and she ends up homeless, right? That kind mm-hmm. of thing can happen all the time. My mom got long COVID and um, it, for a while we thought she was going to lose her house. Like that's not a hypothetical scenario. That kind of stuff right. can, can happen. In that case, she would not be able to make a claim because her harm, her new situation is a logical consequence of his having been harmed. Mm-hmm. So, and what the court does is it compares this to asbestos. It says, well, if you get hurt from asbestos and you're being hurt, means that then economic harms follow or, or people are sad because they have to watch you get hurt. Um, no, that's all, you, you're you out of luck. Workers' comp covers that. But if, you, if you're covered in asbestos when you walk home from the place where you work and you walk in the door and asbestos dust gets all in your house and that hurts your, your family, that's not dependent on you having been injured. So that's kind of the analogy they draw. And so that's where they say, yeah, she is allowed to sue. And so the first 
phase of this case, I have a couple things to say about it, but one, or sorry, phase of this decision, it looks like it might seem progressive for a while and it's, right. it's really, really not. Um, then it gets into like, okay, well, all right, if this was asbestos, you'd be allowed to sue, but that's because, you know, Artie, you said before, these are people who are at the jagged edge of the political economy. Essentially, what the court says is like, hey, if there's a sharp edge and you get a paper cut and there aren't very many of you, we can fix that. But if it really cuts you up and there's yeah. a lot of you, yeah. well, hey, man, that'd be expensive. That's just the cost of doing business then. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a way, it's it's like that the thing with the, the last financial crisis, right? The too big to fail, where it's like, if you really want to succeed in a business where you're harming lots of people, apparently what you need to do is harm a ton of people a lot because then it's so expensive that no one can stop you. Whereas if you harm a few people somewhat, well, then we can afford to stop you. Like that's part of the rationale. And it's really, it's 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 startling in how it's the kind of thing that we as kind of communists say all the time, but it's startling to hear the court say it so directly of like, <laughs> hey, that would hurt, that would hurt the economy if we if we've made all the employers stop this. So nothing personal, but that's just the cost that the working class has to eat. The, the, the other thing I did want to say about the minutia, and I would strongly encourage your listeners if they have the time and energy to look at this decision, because like as a genre of writing, I kept having to stop and, and go do other things. I was so upset reading it. Um, did, did you guys ever see, have you ever seen the movie Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film? Oh yeah, for sure. There's a bit in the beginning when the fly falls into the typewriter and as a result of that error somebody else gets taken by a death squad and tortured yeah. <laughs> it, and it's like this bureaucratic you know like oh hey you know this if you fill out a form we'll give you the corpse back sorry it's like this this really impersonal like hey we're just trying to make sure all the t's are crossed and the i's are dotted and it really draws out a lot of the inhumanity of of state violence this is like that because Here's somebody who had to watch their partner potentially die, right? Be in the hospital on a respirator for weeks from a thing that the employer knew or should have known was going to be incredibly dangerous. And the court like goes through this long process of like kind of like the metaphysics of causality. Like it's this, <laughs> this like the the harm, the scale and the depth and the quality of the harm compared to the kinds of thing and the tone and the the demeanor of the court where they're like, you know, just checking to make sure the T's are crossed. The disjunction there is really intense. If you're someone who understands these harms, like, you know, we do and like your listeners do. And, um, and I think it really brings out to my mind, this really is like a damning example of what the whole legal systems handling of the human consequences of the, of, of the system's actions are, is that they're just, they're really, I feel like it's not, I think it's an accident. I don't think it's designed this way, but I feel like one of the things this draws out is how much the law helps people govern over us without having to actually perceive us because they're kind of they, like, they don't even seem to know what they're doing. They're just kind of like, Hey, just trying to make sure the harms are rationally allocated at the same time. They're talking about this woman having been on a ventilator, right. but they're talking about it in a way as if they don't know what's happening it's it's an i think it's an astonishing document it's Absolutely. also not a rare it's not a rare document it's just like a like this it brings out how often they think this way about us i think that you've just helped me figure out one of the things that was kind of gnawing at the back of my head about this because these two things that are set up right these these two points one uh is there you know can we say the actions of this company harmed 
this person who was not even an employee, but was who, who was married to an employee of theirs. Yes, we can say that. However, however, what was the damage to her versus what would be the potential damage to literally I'll read some of this in a, in a second, but like they say to the damage to society from taking this claim to its logical conclusion and saying, you know, yes, like there's a harm here. Like what kind of, what kind of precedent that that would set for future case law that would in the, the argument here, I would say gum up the court or like quote unquote, open the floodgates. And to that end, I think that the, the degree to which how this very real harm is then contrasted against this sort of hypothetical uh, harm that they're kind of claiming is disproportionate to the harm that actually did happen mm-hmm. is I think that that's what, that's what I mean. But like that, that's the, that's the thing that's been like nagging at me, I think in the, in the back of my head, trying to figure out how they, uh, not how they reconcile it because I feel like I understand how they reconcile it. And actually I want to get into some of the language uh, here about how exactly they, you know, present that. But I think just, you know, figuring out how to, how to understand how directly these two things are lined up against each other, because this, the, when they get to the second part, which I'm again, I'll I'll read some of the um, logic of in a second, it's basically like, okay, and now we're just going to throw away, uh, that whole thing that we said in the first part about how this is a valid line of seeking compensation for damages or or whatever that like we can do uh, that, that, you know, this is a, a valid claim for her to be bringing. We're just going to throw that away. And it's actually not that they're throwing it away. It's actually that they're weighing these two things, you know, the hi- the hypothetical, what they think would happen to the capitalist economy under a situation where this was the form of redress for taking this thing seriously. Right. You know, um, like so many things, obviously, the the ultimate thing is like uh we're gonna look at this hypothetical harm we're gonna look at this hypothetical idea we're gonna weigh against this one specific thing that happened and because it happened to one person or or whatever even though we acknowledge that it happens broadly to a lot of people all the time we're gonna say that this you know that the the possible harm by acting here would outdo you know the benefit of having some sort of redress for this situation and uh, you know again i want to It'll surprise no one, I think, that I want to get into some of the language, though. Um, first, before I read from the decision itself, I want to bring in two things that are arguments made on behalf of Victory, who are the defendant, like the the employer here in this scenario. Um, because basically, this argument that the employer brings ultimately does end up being essentially what the court says is the reason that they're ruling like oh, no no we can't do anything about this sorry like uh you know again sucks to be you so for instance in victory's brief they write if this was decided against the employer that quote there is simply no limit to how wide the net will be cast the wife who claims her husband caught covid19 from the supermarket checker the husband who claims his wife caught it while visiting an elder care home the member of a sorority who claims a sister while serving on jury duty caught it from the court bailiff. All these people would have potential claims against entities deemed essential to society's ability to function. The financial burden that duty would impose on employers would be devastating. Even if that duty were limited to the employer's household, the expansion of liability would be too great in the wake of a replicating virus. And so this language brought by the employer brought by victory is then very much reflected in the court's ultimate 
opinion. So I'm going to going to read just like a snippet of this and then maybe we'll read more of it. But just to get to, I think, the heart of it, uh, part of what the court writes in its conclusion is, quote, while employers may already be required to implement health and safety protocols to protect their employees from COVID-19 infections, Concluding they owe a duty to the household members of employees has the potential to alter employers' behaviors in ways that are harmful to society. Because it is impossible to eliminate the risk of infection, even with perfect implementation of best practices, the prospect of liability for infections outside the workplace could encourage employers to adopt precautions that unduly slow the delivery of essential services to the public. Uh, they they then compare it to the asbestos thing that Nate brought up. The idea about, well, we acknowledge that if people take home asbestos, right? If people like have asbestos on them when they go home, and then someone gets you know mesothelioma or something like that because of employer negligence, then you know we we take that seriously, and so maybe we should too. With COVID, um, they then write of this. However, uh, in the case of asbestos in the workplace, quote, there was also a much smaller pool of potential plaintiffs, household members who were exposed to asbestos from an employee's clothing and then went on to develop mesothelioma. Here, by contrast, a duty to prevent secondary COVID-19 infections would extend to all workplaces, making every employer in California a potential defendant. Um, even limiting a duty of care to employers' household members, the pool of potential plaintiffs would be enormous, numbering not thousands, but millions of Californians. <sighs> okay. Nate, if you want to jump in here, feel free to go ahead. But I just want to mention that what is being framed here is known as, like, I think the floodgates argument of torts law, which is something that comes up over and over and over again in American uh, civil legal history, where you have judges basically weighing in on a case saying, you know what? The biggest issue here is not necessarily the one at hand, but what my decision on the one at hand potentially does to the entire judicial system, to the economy. And this is a big sort of constant paranoia and a position that's pretty well known and established. It's like part of how you think about what your role is as a judge is to sort of be looking out for these moments where you could potentially open up like there's a famous quote like uh, indeterminate amounts of liability for an indeterminate time to an indeterminate class and that they're always sort of on the lookout for these moments where a decision could almost like accidentally break in their minds, the judicial system offsetting the balance of power. And they, they say this really directly. They're like, there'll be too many lawsuits. Mm -hmm. They'll take each one will take a really long time. That would be such a burden on the court system. Not to mention, you know, the, the part that already read out about employers will change their behavior and that'll be really expensive. <laughs> And, and, you know, I think I, it, you know, among the thoughts I have on this, one is that they are, so we've been developing, the three of us and, and some of our comrades, so we've been developing this analysis of the, the pandemic as an example of social murder, right? That capitalism kills and has a tendency to kill, and that's built in, that's what capitalism does. This is a response to that. And, and they don't use that phrase, but the logic of the argument is essentially if the scale of social murder gets big enough, we just have to let it go because it's right. it's too big to fail. It's too big to stop. Um, and and there's a there's a way in which this decision is very similar in the the logic of a lot of 
kind of center liberals, people who are in really in charge of the United States a lot of the time, where there's this sort of, and I think we've seen this all the time with the pandemic, where it's like, hey, we could do something, but you know what? Doing something is actually worse than not doing something because the cure is worse than the illness, actually. And and like, that's this, that's, they say that really directly. Like, hey, if we stop this, that would be so expensive to so much of the economy. And and they really identify society with the ongoing operations of, of capitalism. And there's a, this is not stuff that I've tracked personally, but I think if someone could do some really interesting work and in kind of like what the, the rhetoric of essential has meant during the pandemic. I've, I've kind of just rolled my eyes at it and not really thought about it until we've been talking right now. But there's this thing of like, oh, you're essential workers, right? So Robert Cousiemba is an essential worker at a time when non-essential businesses are not supposed to be open. And so he's an essential worker. And then that means he's forced into exposure to harm. And then here in the, this decision, the court is like, look, certain social processes are just essential to society. And that's not a category that provides anything to ordinary people. It's kind of like, you feel like I use this analogy too much, but it's like running the wood chip, running the wood chipper is essential. So cl- climb in like you're not essential. You're just the fodder for the wood chipper, which is essential. And it's this really awful. And they, they come close to saying that directly. They, they almost say it directly, but I think they get as close as they could without actually saying it. Right. And that's part of the point is they, they don't want to this, 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 these institutions in this vocabulary doesn't permit. And I think that's a feature, not a bug from their perspective. It doesn't permit the reality of social murder to fully be thought. It just permits social murder to be managed by the state. But it's um, it's this that notion that like, hey, we have to have these kinds of institutions. And frankly, they need to operate at whatever level of harm they generate. Like that's the logic of the decision. And because that harm is so omnipresent, there's so much COVID, you're all going to get it. Um, they're just like, you know, nothing personal. Shit rolls downhill. Those of you at the bottom of the hill, you're going to just eat all this shit. And that's just what's going to happen now. And it's really striking that that's essentially they're just saying this is now built into what it is to have a job. Part of having a job now is the chance that maybe you're going to disable or kill someone who lives with you. That's just the new normal we're in. Nothing can be done about it. Nothing personal. Live with it. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, is really shocking to hear said out loud. And they said that they almost say it that directly in this case. Um, the other thing I was thinking about as I was reading this, I thought a whole bunch about your book. As you know, I'm a big fan. And I think that, you know, in, in, in health communism, you talk about um, people who are considered surplus to, to capitalist system. And I think that there's some people who hear that category and think there's people who are currently not valued and they get treated terribly. And that's true. Absolutely. But I think the other thing that what this case really shows is if you're harmed, you're turned into surplus. So the the fact that a population is currently not surplus is not actually protective. Um, If you're you're in the club for now, that means you haven't yet been harmed. That's all that means. Once you get harmed, you're then out of the club and you're in, and there's all of these rhetorics and processes kick in to justify the fact that you're out of the club and you you deserved your harm or nothing can be done. And I think that's that's something that really struck me while I was reading your book. I think it's a great book. Everyone should read it. I think it's very powerfully articulated in the book. And it came out really strongly reading this case where it was like, these are people who were doing everything they were supposed to. 
They're arguably in the in-group in a certain sense. And the court just said, hey, circumstance changed. Being in the in-group now may be a certain level of in-group, right? They're not high up on the food chain. But but being a worker who can get by and having this kind of job, now there's a chance that a trap door just opens under your feet now. And you just have to live with that. And if that happens, you're out of luck. There's nothing for you. Because if we did anything for you, well, that would hurt the people who really matter. Yeah. Uh... I really thank you, Nate. I really appreciate it. It's, it's nice to hear that the stuff you really care about hits the way you hoped it would. It means a lot. But I feel like what is also at play here that I think is, is such an important angle of how the surplus class functions also is that what this is a demonstration of is that being in solidarity with someone who's surplus, being in a household with someone who's surplus, there is discipline not just on the surplus person themselves, but on the people in their life, too. Mm -hmm. There is punishment on, you know, people who even sort of associate and let sick people into their lives, right? Like the framework that we're thinking about here and looking at at this case is is not just um, a definition of, of who is surplus, but what the relationship is between surplus and worker and what the employer's relationship is supposed to be to the entire picture. And it takes that and takes the surplus person and basically puts them in a position of existing in this kind of imaginary island, right, that we've been talking about the whole time around the pandemic. The idea that the surplus person is not a part of society, right? The idea that the only way you can sort of prove these take-home COVID cases, as they're called, is like if you can also prove that, for example, the person is not out and about in the world working elsewhere, that it could have only possibly come from the employer's negligence. So let's say, you know, the same exact circumstance happened. Someone explicitly because they were exposed due to the very specific circumstances of their employment, if they brought home that COVID infection and they passed it to their partner and their partner got sick and was in the hospital, but also worked a job too, where, you know, theoretically in the, a court of law, you could argue that it's equally as likely that you got it at your job, right? Like it's, it's, it's also basically laying out that the only kinds of claims that are going to be acceptable and looked at are ones where you can verify that the person is surplus by their isolation and by their removal from society. And what you have the court really sort of saying here is, okay, so even if absolutely this, this sort of sick person surrounded by the island of the well is directly infected as a, as a direct result of the labor relations of the person that they live with, it's not the problem of the employer that this is the structural and social circumstance of COVID transmission right now because COVID is everywhere. And therefore, it's, I, I, I mean, the reasoning doesn't make sense, right? The logic doesn't fucking lay out when you try and speak it out loud because they're like, because it's everywhere, it's not like asbestos, which is like a specific harm in one place, right? You know, like, it's 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 a it's completely almost like a slippery slope argument. And I think what's really important to emphasize is that a lot of people who study this kind of um, idea of the floodgates and how that permeates throughout like judicial culture and uh, different decisions, they've pretty consistently say like 
constitutional law scholars on both sides, even conservatives, that technically a lot of these decisions by judges have no factual basis, right? Like the paranoia is full on paranoia, social contagion. These judges have reproduced the idea that they cannot let people access their rights too much lest they open the floodgates and you know, slow down the whole justice system for everyone else. And what they really are talking about is that it's their job to maintain a balance of power. And that balance of power has a specific direction and a specific recipient in mind. And you and me, the person who got COVID because of their boss, you're not the recipient of that power. And you're not supposed to be someone who gets power through the courts. And so they're making sure that power flows in the right direction and that they're maintaining that pathway of not necessarily extraction, but protection from the responsibility and the liability, right, of of maintaining any sort of COVID protections, really, mm-hmm. it's it's it becomes a kind of situation where the cost of it, right? If we're, if everything's based on cost benefit analysis, the judges here are like taking the cost off the table for employers. So it's like if everything's supposed to be predicated now in our COVID like privatized era on you know the goodwill of employers and begging insurance companies to be nice and not charge too much money and, you know, begging pharma to be nice, then what this is really doing and setting an example for is that, you know, these costs that are supposedly going to motivate employers, well, you know, there's a significant amount of political energy invested in making sure that that cost is not burdensome and taken off the table and Every cost that's taken off the table for industry and the economy and for businesses is really just being foisted onto private, like private people, right? Yeah. It's the privatization of, of risk. I mean, and I think to back up the thing that y- you guys have been saying, you know, they they do very explicitly spell out in this court decision this floodgates argument. They write. Quote, imposing on employers a tort duty to each employee's household members to prevent the spread of this highly transmissible virus would throw open courthouse doors to a deluge of lawsuits that would be both hard to prove and difficult to call early in the proceedings. Um, Although it is foreseeable, they continue, although it is foreseeable that employees infected at work will carry the virus home and infect their loved ones, the dramatic expansion of liability that the plaintiff's suit envisions has the potential to destroy businesses and curtail, if not outright end, the provision of essential public services. And that language obviously is grotesque, but I think to go off of what, you know, the two of you are saying... I think it's very important that we contrast that with the whole rhetoric of individual risk and sort of managing and being uh, responsible for your own risk that we have had for so long as, you know, the marching orders of like, especially under the Biden COVID response, right? Because in so many words, the statement has been, you know, from the Biden administration, like, Oh, well, if you're immunocompromised or vulnerable in some way or or, you know, whatever, you're just a you're just a person and you're still worried about this, um, you know, just uh, d- don't don't do shit. Don't go outside again, you know, but like, I mean, 
I hate having to say it like this because it's almost just a joke, but like we live in a fucking society, yes. right? It's <laughs> impossible to escape society. Vulnerable people, immunocompromised people. And, you know, obviously those are not the only groups of people who are at risk of COVID. Everyone's at risk of COVID, but like vulnerable and immunocompromised people live with people. They live in society. They live in the fucking community. And, you know, this is why we got so on top of the Biden administration in like March 2022 when they started rolling out this thing that was like, oh, yeah, you know, so going forward, just if you're immunocompromised, like uh, ask people to test before they visit you as though like always using that language as though one, the guidance was never meant to speak to immunocompromised or vulnerable people themselves. And as though two, uh, again, you know, immunocompromised or vulnerable people just live somewhere else. Right. They're just somewhere else. And so, you know, we don't have to worry about them. But then what this court decision shows very clearly is they're I mean, they're they're acknowledging like, look, COVID transmission, it's the fucking butterfly effect. Right. It's like we never have this acknowledgement at a policy level because everyone's finding the language that they have with the tools that their sort of uh, administrative purview gives them they're trying to find the angle under which it's not their problem right so the court saying you know oh it would have these disastrous effects on the economy and so for policy considerations we can't do this and then the people who are setting the policy specifically saying like oh well you know we couldn't get in the way of businesses either we couldn't we couldn't possibly do anything about this mm. you know it's just it, it's you know it, it's interesting the degree to which i suppose the argument laid out in this case shows almost the inverse of what the Biden positions have been. But they're both kind of like, when I say inverse, it's like they're both kind of looking away from the same subject. I was going to say it's like the evil twin, but they're both evil. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> the the so I, I, I agree completely. I want, I want to jump back for a second and then come back to what you said. So you said a, a little bit ago, you read from the decision where they're like, hey, this could put some businesses out of business. You know, and like, just imagine you're standing in the hospital where this woman is being a kept alive on a respirator because her husband's boss gave her COVID basically. And, and, and your response watching that is, boy, I hope no businesses go under because of this. Like it's, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's so fucking ghoulish. Yeah. And, and, and they're, and they're like, and you know what, to make sure no businesses have to go under, there's, there's, a, we'll take an unlimited number of people on respirators as long as no business have to go out, go out of business. Like that's, that's the logic. It's, it's, I think one of the big takeaways from this, because as, as we talked about earlier at the beginning, California has an ostensibly more progressive standard than, than <laughs> is typical for the U.S. for liability for businesses, standard of care. And um, there was a public health order already in place that the business knowingly violated. So un- even under those circumstances, this is what we get. So I think one of the like screaming takeaways from this is that we are really on our own. There aren't institutions they're going to do anything unless they're forced to by movements. But getting back to what you're saying, I agree completely about the the two narratives and how they're they're like inverse but complementary because we're getting the oh hey be responsible it's an individual problem narrative and then we're getting the um, COVID's over it's like you know this as you, you all have called repeatedly talked about on the show the, the sociological production of the end of the pandemic as opposed to an actual end of the pandemic and and in in this case they haven't uh, the an inverted story where they're like, essentially, COVID's everywhere forever, but the political takeaway is the same. Because so the the the, the policy rhetoric out of the White House and CDC and so on is 
COVID's over, therefore nothing can be done, nothing should be done. Harms aren't happening. If harms do happen, well, that's an individual issue and we'll sweep it under the rug. Whereas here, the court says directly and the the and the the briefs filed by the Chamber of Commerce and the briefs filed by the Construction Employers Association say this, and the court takes up the language from them. Yeah, COVID's everywhere. It's super infectious, and there's no sense that it's going to go away. And so it's like, in a way, the, the political effect of no more pandemic and forevermore pandemic become identical. Um, and it, that's also really disturbing. Like like I said a, a little bit ago, it's like they've said the scale of social murder is just now so large that it just has to be allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, that's that's it's really upsetting yeah fucking infuriating and it makes me actually think of one of the really important assumptions that's baked into this framing that we haven't touched on yet which is like okay so the argument is that if we held employers liable for take-home COVID. If we made employers give a shit and protect their employees such that they didn't get sick at work and bring it home, it would open this flood of litigation, right? Like, this is the anxiety. They're so worried this is going to be an endless series of liability litigation. So, like, what's contained in that framing is a vision of the world where liability litigation does nothing to stop the spread of COVID in the workplace. <laughs> yeah, totally. I didn't, I like, didn't think okay, about that. Yeah. You're so worried it's going to explode. It's going to put businesses out of business. It's going to tank the fucking economy and ruin society. What? Because people are just going to continue to proceed to make people sick and not give a shit about it. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. All right, that's your vision of the world. That's the that's a very core and important assumption that's contained within this floodgate framing, which is that this also reflects a fundamental disbelief in the legal system's ability to stop, you know, negligent behavior uh, and fucking dangerous working conditions. And it really is a pretty damning indictment of the very system itself that they're operating within, whose legitimacy they're seeking to preserve by, you know, making sure that they can offer this decision. But it's absolutely wild to think about the fact that, you know, within the very framing of this is the assumption that this massive, terrifying tsunami of litigation as they called it i mean wasn't it called a tsunami of litigation at one point in the in the decision like that that in and of itself this terrifying threat that must be dealt with with such a decision that that wouldn't be a deterrent like that's fucking wild that's a wild assumption it's totally wild and and as you were talking about something clicked in my head i hadn't thought about whereas like we're we are like capitalism is a death machine humanity could do better and and some people hear us and are like that's a kind of wild man capitalism's a death machine that's kind of overstated and basically this decision is saying capitalism is a death machine but humanity can't do better so we just need to make sure it doesn't become a broken death machine because that'd be worse like so it's this it's this really strange and you talked about it sort of legitimizing it's it's really to me, it's I find it very dis- disorienting because they're not legitimizing this based on any like 
positive qualities. It's just this like, hey, in a way, it's very much like kind of peak Biden Democrat, where it's like, hey, there's nothing for you, but you know, but it, the alternative is worse than nothing. Right. So there's no sort of like positively selling anything to us. There's no like look at the goods. It's just like take what you have or take something worse. Our job is to be the responsible party as judges to make sure you don't cheers worse because you plebs are stupid and you might do that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they're like selling their own legitimacy, even in the same moment that they're saying that their actions and this flood of liability like lawsuits wouldn't stop anything. Like, so they're like touting their own legitimacy, even in the moments where they say, like, basically, our actions do nothing to stop harm at the end of the day. Well, like, right. it's but, <laughs> And this is why I mean, this is why I think God. the you know, one thing I feel like that you have to remember when reading through this is that there is such like it has become so pervasive in the liberal worldview, not just the idea that like the pandemic is over and we have the tools and therefore, you know, the only people still dying are the ones who like did it to themselves in some way to paraphrase essentially what, it, you know, the Biden administration is saying. Um, but on top of that, you know, this is part of the long tail, I think, of the whole conversation of like, oh, well, you know, as of Omicron, the virus was just so contagious or whatever that no amount of mitigation that you could possibly do, like you can try, but you know, there's always going to be this, um, like it's always going to be there and it's, and it's like impossible to orient society otherwise is then, you know, I think that's very much part of the worldview that shapes this whole, um, it like, it's like how you could so easily make a decision like this, right? Cause it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, we've, we've got this, well, it's strange, right, though, because at the same, uh, in the one hand, you it has to, like, both hold in mind, apparently, those ideas that are so pervasive that, like, the pandemic is over, but then also hold in mind that there would be so much harm happening that there would be this wave of lawsuits, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, which is it? Is the pandemic over, or are you just done with it? Mm-hmm. Like, and obviously, I know it's just that you're done with it. But that's, I mean, that there's, it is very difficult to read this case another way, right? Other other than like, okay, we're going to say, yes, it's okay. Yes, it's pervasive, but also we're not going to take it seriously enough that we're going to be saying, you know, it's pervasive and therefore there's going to be so much harm happening that we have to do something about that great degree of harm. No, actually the bigger harm would be all of the suits, you know, all of the liability that would fall on businesses or whatever. And that would be the huge problem, even though, you know, like something like 30 states or more like enacted what are called shield laws, which means that like this wouldn't even get past, you know, this certainly wouldn't get to the Supreme Court of, a of you know, those 30 states if they were trying to sue, because there are laws that prevent this type of liability from being sought in court, literally, that were uh, uh, put in as like, proactive measures by uh, lawmakers who wanted to protect businesses from COVID liability. California is not one of those states, which is why this decision was, you know, looked at so closely. And, you know, now we have, now we have this thing which where again, which is it like, uh, is there so much harm being done that it would be, you know, such a burden to society as to possibly end the provision of essential services is literally literally they say possibly end the provision of essential services or is it you know just this thing that we're all expected to deal with that is so pervasive in society that we can't hold an employer accountable for it Mm -hmm. 
I hadn't thought of this until we were talking, but something clicked. Um, so I, I have I had this essay a while back, and we talked about it at a bill of health about um, social murder and depoliticization. And I've been a very for other reasons, pandemic and other reasons, I've been very interested in this literature coming from a group of Marxists in the United Kingdom about the category of depoliticization. And it, it occurs to me as as we're talking that that's part of what the the court system is doing. And it's absolutely what the Biden administration isn't doing. We've talked about that, that um, there's nothing to be done politically. This is essentially just out of anyone's hands. It's inevitable. And and what's striking to me, I think, in the broader kind of political arena, what's interesting is that, in a way, the only people who are doing politics are the right and they're doing an oppressive politics. Right. We're going to put trans people's rights up for grabs and then take them away. Right. Whereas the Democrats are just like. Well, there's just, you know, there's no, nothing can be politicized because nothing can be done. And and what strikes me here in this decision is there's both, you know, nothing can be done about the about the pandemic. And also what, what you two were saying, that in a way, the liability is like the threat of politics. Like if we if we allow there to be deliberation over liability, just the fact of deliberation in courts. It'd be so many cases that so much deliberation would take so much time and resources. And so like even allowing the question of like, should something be done about this? Like they're, they're trying to work to prevent that. And, and I don't think that's unique to the pandemic. I think that's a part of, so this this UK analysis has developed largely in response to the the Labor Party under Tony Blair. And I, and I think the Clinton Democrats and the, the Blairite Labor Party are, are very, very similar. And it's this move of like, there's no politics. We're just technocrats. But I think like that technocratic impulse in a pandemic context and, and, and in many other contexts, and you all have talked about this in a lot of ways in your show, is, is an incredibly brutal, violent posture. But it's one that, that allows the people who inhabit it to deny that they're enacting that violence and brutality at the same time they're enacting it. Just yeah. I mean, like like in this case. Um, where the judges can be like, yeah, you know, Corby Kusiemba, you you almost died, your problem. But they don't have to like really look themselves in the mirror while they say that because of this depoliticizing liberal um, framework that they operate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm glad that you brought up that depoliticization angle because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in relation to this sort of, you know, as I mentioned, this is like a, a, a class of lawsuits, right? This is like a type of lawsuits and looking into it, you know, it's very interesting because looking into the case law and a lot of these and the sort of decisions that have been filed in other cases that are relatively similar, a lot of the conclusions are very similar. Actually, mm-hmm. we do come up onto this, um, this like idea of, you know, we're, we're here to hold the line basically and to sort of depoliticize this uh, situation. Like specifically your comments, Nate, bring to mind this thing, uh, which I, I wanted to bring in actually from, there's another court case, which actually was referenced in this one just briefly, but this is a similar case. Although in this case, the, the person um, actually died. Like this is another situation of a worker brings COVID home with them um, in this case, their spouse died. Um, this is a case that was decided uh, in Wisconsin in June of last year. So June 2022, Ruiz versus Conagra Foods, Packaged Foods, LLC. And I wanted to bring this in because the conclusion 
in this case in particular, while very similar to the one that we're talking about, this ca- the California case that we're talking about, spells out that sort of uh, depoliticization angle even further. Um, and the decision in this Wisconsin case, I, th- I think, is like much more blunt about its kind of disregard for the people at all, the situation. And remember, this is written, a decision written a full year before. So uh, I'm just going to read briefly from this. Um, this is from the conclusion to uh, Ruiz v. Conagra Foods, Packaged Foods LLC from 2022, which is, uh, again, coming to basically the same decision as this California court did, where, you know, it would be too too big of a cost to society to do anything about this. Um, quote, in a world where every wrong must have a remedy, the law might provide recompense to a plaintiff against the company whose acts or omissions led to the infection of an employee who ultimately infected the plaintiff, the, the woman who died in this case. However, uh, as Judge Andrews recognized in his Paul's graph dissent nearly 100 years ago, quote, because of convenience of public policy of a rough sense of justice, the law arbitrarily declines to trace a series of events beyond a certain point. This is not logic. It is practical politics, unquote. That's quoting another judge's decision. Um, the, the conclusion continues in a pandemic that has resulted in some 60% of the United States population contracting the virus. It becomes increasingly impractical to focus on a single outbreak. For the reasons given above, I conclude that imposing liability under these circumstances would impose too great a burden on the defendant and would enter a field with no reasonable or principled stopping point. It's interesting that it says arbitrary, but but from our line analysis, it's it's not really arbitrary. It it falls predictably along class lines, right? And yeah, and um, this it's this. It's so it's it's hard to take because it's this really clear like they're like a lot of you are nobodies and you don't matter and they but they they all but say it it's such a loud subtext but they because it's still in the subtext they don't even have to admit that that's where that that's what they're saying yeah. um, and I I, I, I I like I said I kept having to take breaks when when I was reading the reading the other decision because it's it's such an hard ugly re- statement of the actual reality and the other thing i think I, I don't know how to put this this would not be the this would not be the attitude of these judges if we were talking about the same frequency of hospitalized judges or hospitalized congressmen <laughs> like it's right. it's clearly like a for the nobodies at the bottom of the hill they get one set of outcomes and for for people who matter further up the hill well, we don't even imagine this would happen to us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the things that is is really kind of at play here is, you know, let's say there's a, a hypothetical, right? Judges love hypotheticals. Let's do a wild <laughs> hypothetical. Um, Artie gets uh, COVID at work and he brings it home because of the conditions of his employer. And that means that I get COVID because I'm high risk and my clown college goes out of business because I had COVID, right? Like if protections could save a business through a kind of chain of dependency and causality, right? Would that make it worth it? Are we then weighing one business 
against the other. I mean, does that make it more clear that any part of this decision is just a value judgment that's being justified with legalese? I mean, what they are saying all over this decision is only certain people's lives matter. Get it straight. Yeah. This is a value judgment. This goes against, I mean, who cares? Like, the judges are like hypocritical, right? But like this does literally go against what they're told to do in these instances, which is read the law for what it says and make decisions according to that. And what people have said consistently about these kinds of like slippery slope arguments, especially when it comes to COVID and these floodgate fixations of judges, is that it's a really important example of who the system of quote unquote justice is for. Right. Like you can really see who the object of justice is supposed to be when you see these moments where, you know, decisions are made and articulated in such a way where they are agreeing 100 percent that there is structural harm here and they are naturalizing what are, you know, the conditions in society, in, in the world, in the air, in the political economy, in the workplace that are the result of specific policy and political and and public health decisions, right? And saying that is the natural order of the world. And so it shall fucking be. And this is how we like do politics in the United States and policy making, right? Which is that these inane bullshit, self-rationalized value judgments from, you know, these court decisions, they become precedent. And because policy is an iterative process, right? Like there's a reason that chambers of commerce people have been like drooling over this decision, right? There's a reason that there are like, you know, attorneys celebrating this because they represent big corporate clients like, you know, Walmart or Target who could really, really be in trouble if the precedent uh, was set, right? That they were somehow suddenly responsible and open to all this liability, right? Like, so the kind of celebrating and I think the kind of like clear sort of target of quote-unquote justice that's obvious here makes so clear that this is really all just a value judgment. And it's completely um, hidden behind all of these different justifications, right? And at the end of the day, what they're really saying is that if they were to, like, fuck with the dial too much, not only could they, like, destabilize capital's, you know, leverage or power or whatever, but they lose their utility as judges because that's really what they're there to do. You know, they are there to make decisions that are friendly to, you know, the economy. It's important to the state of California to have a good credit score and grow GDP, right? Like, if they were to decide this differently, like, I would imagine that they would be inundated with pressure and calls and all sorts of shit from business leaders oh, and yeah. the lawyers that they've well, hired. I, mean, I and- mean, the Chamber of Commerce brief in this case was literally, is, you know, practically reads like a threat of, you know, businesses are just going to leave California en masse if you do this. I agree completely. And I really like the way you put it, B, in terms of, of who justice is for. And on, on that, if I may, um, on workers' comp and who justice is for, I can imagine some people hearing this and being like, yes, yes, I agree. But the pandemic's an exceptional moment. And unfortunately, I think on the one hand, um, the Biden administration is working to make it where this may be the rest of our lives. It's a forever pandemic. Yeah. Um, but 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 also, um, I wanted to just note something about workers' comp, if I may, 
even pre-pandemic. So the first long part of this decision where they're asking whether or not um, Corby Kusiemba, who's the woman who got hospitalized, whether or not she can even sue at all, they go through how a lot of harms are just not compensable or they're already built in. And 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 very quickly, I have a, a personal story about this. So, um, so, so I'm, I'm 11 years older than my youngest brother and I'm nine years older than my middle brother. And both of my brothers have um, repeatedly they work in construction and factory work and so on, and have repeatedly been hurt. And um, that's and and being as much older as they are, I, I'm I love them very much, and I, I did a lot of childcare. I help raise them. I'm, I'm, I have a kind of like an uncle relationship in some ways. Um, and and they've repeatedly been hurt in workplace accidents because work is dangerous, and um, that's profoundly upsetting. And were they to be hurt? And then they lost their home or, or their, my one brother has three kids. Like if they were to be hurt and my brother's kids were rendered homeless, like all of those additional harms that are packed into workplace injury, they're just like shoved aside um, and they don't matter. And they're, they're, the law is built from the jump when it was created in the teens. Competition laws are built to to just push all of that aside. And you know, already you said it before, you're like, you know, it seems funny I've said, but like we live in a society. And what mm-hmm. that means is that individuals are not, in fact, individuals. Individuals are points in networks of relationships. And so when you hurt a person, there's lots of other harms to that, that whole that person's network of relationships. And all, all basically none, very few of those real harms which genuinely exist are comprehensible or legible under competition laws or presentable and so even pre-pandemic there's this this line that's drawn i think that's part of what we're talking about there's this line that drawn that just drawn that says most of these harms are just your problem and we won't even recognize that they exist let alone give you something for them let alone try to stop them and so the, the pandemic this case is especially worrying because COVID is such an intense expression of the tendency for capitalism to kill. But it's it's an example of, as we've talked about, as you, as you know, you all know, we want to make sure for listeners, this is an example of long-standing patterns of social murder. And the law's response here is an example of, of its of its long-standing pattern of saying, how do we minimize the political consequences? of social murder for the people who really matter. It's exceedingly rare that the law or other institutions do anything to actually mitigate or stop social murder. The only times they really do that are in the pressure uh, or in the face of tremendous pressure from social movements and, and rebellions. Um, and I wanted to just draw that out because I think that it's it's important to not think of this, this the, parts of the pandemic are exceptional. I don't want to deny that at all. But the logic of what's playing out is actually not exceptional. It's the ordinary brutality of the system. It's the death machine doing what the death machine always does, just in an especially visible and and widespread way. It actually makes me think so much of this quote from Jill Quadagno that I actually pulled for this episode. It's from her 1987 essay called Theories of the Welfare State. And she's asking this question of like why the state acts in the interest of capital uh, rather than like reflecting the interests of groups in society or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, so she says, 
While capitalists are generally not conscious of what is necessary to reproduce the social order, state managers must be for their continued power rests on political and economic order. The central constraint on the decision-making power of state managers is business confidence. Individual capitalists make investment decisions on the basis of such tangibles as the price of labor and the size of the market, as well as such intangibles as the political and economic climate. Business confidence falls during political turmoil and rises when there is a restoration of order. Since state managers are dependent on the investment accumulation process, they must use whatever resources they possess to aid that process. So, you know, like, but I do think that that really what you're sort of seeing here in so many ways is that what the pandemic lays bare is that the suspension of, quote unquote, normal operations, things like the um, Medicaid unwinding being turned back on, things like student loan payments being turned back on, things that cement, you know, a hard line in the sand about liability. These are really important components of what the production of the end of the pandemic actually means, right? It's not all just Biden administration policy. It's not all what the CDC says. It's not all MMWRs. It is also, you know, what are the kind of institutions of American governance doing to maintain normal and restore, quote unquote, order and erase crisis from the framework, whether that's, you know, things like what we saw with In-N-Out Burger, where they are literally prohibiting um, their employees from wearing masks in certain states. They can't prevent their employees in California from wearing masks because there's an explicit law that says as part of the remaining pandemic uh, protections, you cannot bar employees from wearing a mask. So they got around that in, in California by issuing a recommendation that was separate from the other states where they were telling employees explicitly, like without a doctor's note, you can't mask by saying California employees had to wear like uh, N95s that were approved or provided by in and out management. So you really sort of see the obsession and fixation with ending the pandemic as it's a kind of iterative process, right? Where everybody's looking to everyone else to kind of back up each other's decisions. And we're seeing in real time the normalization of social murder, which was momentarily evident and obvious at the surface, right? And part of what's going on now and what we're living through in this moment is the kind of reburial of social murder back within the structural, legal, and institutional framework in which it normally hides. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, but that's the part of the whole process of sociologically producing the end of the pandemic, right? It's naturalizing social murder, essentially. It's mm -hmm. naturalizing that social murder that, as Nate was saying, is a long-standing process of the capitalist economy and incorporating now these new, you know, in, incorporating now the burden of COVID into the regular, you know, uh, again, cost of doing business, right? And this is the thing, you know, this is one of the reasons why we've been for so long saying, you know, like, okay, you, you wanted, quote unquote, back to normal, like, this is what back to like, quote unquote, back to normal looks like in a situation where you don't actually systemically address the threat of COVID, but you just sort of, you know, push it away to the margins or you sort of just stop talking about it right it's the idea of back to normal as okay now everyone knows the risks everyone understands what their personal risk score or whatever is theoretically somewhere in their head except for they don't because they don't because first of all that's not a thing that you can actually calculate 
not that it would be a calculation, but that's not, that's not something you can actually conceive of because as we're joking, like we live in a society. Um, and because the thing that I think this case shows actually very readily is that we've been sold this idea of understanding risks as that being a sufficient sort of social, like society wide response while at the same time, the unspoken undercurrent of all that is of course when those risks are then taken or whatever or when you're persuaded to go back to normal something goes wrong who's liable for that who like what saves you clearly certainly not the courts i mean i wouldn't have assumed that the courts would save you but i'm just saying certainly like an employer is not liable because oh covid's just everywhere now and you know you know you knew the risks or whatever you you took the risks you uh you you know what whatever my like the employer negligence or malfeasance like whatever not really a big deal now you know that that's what i think frustrates me so often when when you see there's a difficulty that i think a lot of people have in understanding like covid as a very fundamental like workers rights and labor rights issue you know what i mean because mm-hmm. so many there's that like there's that like a uh, very kind of specious argument that's like oh yeah whatever you know people are working such and such long hour shifts like they don't want to mask like they don't they shouldn't have to mask or something like obviously that's bullshit but it's like the the complete disavowal of connecting the dots mm-hmm. here is just um you know i i think just this is a very good demonstration of why it is so important to like understand these things as, as related. Yeah. I think the thing that's also, this is just such an obvious example of something we've talked a lot about throughout the pandemic of, of really the kind of cost benefit analysis being a gross exaggeration, right? Where you have the framework of like, Oh God, if we were to, you know, redress this very clear wrong that we all agree is harm, we could open this sort of terrible flood of of litigation, right? But the fact of the matter is to prove causal chain, it's impossible now without testing. You know, you, the, the barriers for proving the fact that this infection came from a workplace were difficult during the early years of the pandemic, but in the context of the moment that they are making this decision and what the moment and pandemic is going to look like moving forward, you know, the burden of proof itself is already such a high bar to clear that this is not a fucking problem. This is a fake problem that they're concerned with here. Right. And you can really see the enormity of the exaggeration when we're starting to to engage in these cost benefit discussions of like, well, can we really afford to slow down and protect everyone? Can we really afford the cost in the economy? You know, the what is being weighed there is a you know minimized perspective of what the life of a vulnerable person is and who that vulnerable person is and where in society they are and what their life is limited to. And that's weighted against this enormous exaggeration of what the potential downhill consequences could be. I mean, it's it's fascinating. And it, I, I've been thinking a lot about some of the weird moments in, in like legal uh, liability history, specifically around disability, where, for example, um, like if you're a blind person and you're walking down the street and you um, hurt yourself like because of construction, because there was an assign or there's a sidewalk problem, you know, a kind of slip and fall case, right? 
if you are not with a mobility aid, with a dog or a cane, like you have no standing to sue under torts law because there's a responsibility built into the framework of understanding liability that disabled people are obligated to rely on assistance or mobility devices. And if you were not relying on assistance or mobility device and you fell through a hole in the street, that's your fault. Like, and this is really ultimately the kind of legal framework that we're we're dealing with at the end of the day when we talk about the conditions of employment, you know, in the absence of OSHA regulations, in the absence of CDC guidance, and in the absence of liability protections, right? Like, we're talking about masking being negotiated at a hyper-individual level, one-on-one with your individual employer on a case-by-case basis. I mean, this sounds like the same way that accessibility is limited by the conditions of the ADA, saying that each and every sort of moment is needs to be weighed in its individual context. You know, what are we doing? Like weighing the ways that this could potentially slow down the judicial system against the ways that, you know, this could slow down someone's fucking life to have to jump these hurdles. We're never weighing those two possibilities in cost-benefit analysis. It's always these kind of exaggerated options where the pro-business option is exaggerated to be, you know, an urgent priority, if not the end of the world, if it's not addressed, weighted against, you know, the very most bare minimum claims from people who are vulnerable or surplus or, you know, just average workers. As you, as you both were talking, I was thinking, I, I, I looked it up, so I want to get the exact words. There's a, a line that I, that I think speaks to me a lot, I think about all the time, from Walter Benjamin. He writes, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the emergency situation in which we live is the rule. So I think in that quote is very many people are living their lives in the middle of or in the shadow or at the under the potential of a really, really of a genuinely real kind of catastrophe. And that's just like this. That's just what it is to be at the bottom of the food chain in various ways is to is to be forced to live in under inhumane circumstances under arguably catastrophic circumstances on a regular basis or the, under under the threat of that. And that reality is often denied in politics and in culture. But where I think it's, I find it useful to read the kind of like stuff we've been reading today, like these cases, is that under in, in certain kinds of documents, like in legal documents, there's an admission by the powerful, both these judges and by the Chamber of Commerce and by the Construction Employer Association. Yes, that's the case. This is everywhere. Everybody, people are going to get jacked up. You know that confirms a lot of our analysis. And then what changes, as you were saying before, be the, dif- the real difference is a value judgment about what to do in that reality. Um, and so, but it's, I think that's where for some of some of our, our friends and colleagues and family members who may be skeptical of some of the analysis, I think sometimes reading this kind of stuff is helpful because you can put it in the voice of someone who's decidedly not a radical and, and quote their words and say, "Hey, look, here's what they have planned for us." So there's a similar point. People talk about this in terms of economic policy and military stuff, too, right? If you read the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, you get a sense of what the ruling class is actually thinking. I think this is similar with these kinds of documents, um, legal documents. Is It's a place where the people who really have power in the system face up to the reality that capitalism is a ca- does consign lots of people to catastrophic lives pretty regularly. And they need to know that, powerful need to know that some of the time in order to continue to manage the, the ongoing infliction of catastrophe on us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think to a certain degree, that's one of the things that, that we try to seek out on this show all the time is like, okay, I mean, th- there are people just saying it all over the place. You know, there, there are various ways as sort of you're saying, Nate, that they're saying 
this stuff outright, you know, they're spelling out the logic of this process very directly, right? They're, they're saying it. And so, you know, I think, and so, you know, I, I think the, the use of that is maybe also to just sort of like, before we sort of wrap out to, to, you know, bounce back or allude to something that you um, said earlier, Nate, you know, I think the, the answer is and remains broad social action. The answer is and remains systemic institutional level intervention, not necessarily a circus of liability lawsuits, right? I mean, I think that this is a fascinating text and a fascinating um, case for a variety of reasons, including as we're talking about them kind of saying the quiet part loud, the degree to which this does show us that there isn't a floor, there's always a way to rationalize social murder away, right? But, you know, if the decision was different, in some ways, it's, you know, is the ideal way to deal with some form of pandemic justice, you know, a butterfly effect chain of business liability <laughs> lawsuits? No. Mm-hmm. You know, in a certain sense, there, you know, there's a degree to which obviously the the words that they're using, the way that they that it's uh framed is sort of ghoulishly tethered to the the consensus of the current formulation of the political economy with no interest in deviating from it and only wanting to, you know, make sure that they're, uh, I was going to say keeping things within the edges, but really it's just like, you know, monitoring the edge while people fall off of it. And, you know, we are here and just saying, you know, we don't need an edge. Mm -hmm. I, I think this decision does two things. One, it's a, it is a decision. It's a choice. And what they've decided is, uh, that we're really on our own. Um, they're going to discard who they're going to discard. And I think the other, another thing that we learned from this is this really confirms not, I mean, I was convinced already, but this really confirms a lot of our analysis and that in important ways, powerful actors are, are actually seeing the, the objective situation, the social patterns in ways that fit pretty clearly with our analysis. But as you said above, B, the, the real differences are in the value judgments they're drawing in response. But they, they're actually seeing and are aware of a lot of the same patterns that we are. And it's not that they don't know, it's that they're okay with it. And that's, again, those are hard realities um, to sit with. But I think that's one of the things that's valuable about having dug into this together. Yeah, it's a hard reality to sit with, but it helps define the contours of the enemy mm-hmm. as it were Absolutely. and that's always useful absolutely. absolutely and i think that's the perfect place to leave it for today nate it's been so nice to have you back on the show thank you as always for joining us it's been wonderful to be back thank you for having me and folks if you want to follow nate you can follow him on twitter at n underscore hold uh, as long as Twitter's still working. <laughs> um, and he's done some recent writing on Petrie Flom blog. That's really good. So we'll link to that also in the episode description. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.